Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are solution architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology, and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives in topics of interest. All right, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Shai Peronek and this is episode uh, 86 of the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. Uh, for today's show, I'm joined by my co-host Cheryl and Steve Liedig. Uh, he's the Principal Serverless Specialist Solution Architect at AWS, who's going to go uh, tell us all about Amazon EventBridge. Welcome, Cheryl. Welcome, Steve. I'm super glad to have both of you here. I know you both have put a ton of effort and a lot of work um, into the content of the show and making sure that we, we get pretty deep into the content. Um, and I'm super excited for this stuff. And so let's get going already. Um, you know, let's give a quick introduction. Cheryl, do you want to kick us off first with an introduction? Sure, Shai. Thank you. And hello, everyone. I'm uh, Cheryl Joseph, and uh, I'm an AWS Solutions Architect uh, based in New Jersey. I've uh, been at AWS for almost two years now, and it's just been a jam-packed and an amazing journey so far. Um, seems like I joined AWS just yesterday, but I guess time flies when you're having fun. So I'm really excited to be talking to you all and with Steve about EventBridge today. Um, good evening, everybody. Hello. Uh, good morning. Uh, good afternoon. My name's Steve. Um, hello, Cheryl. Good Shai. Um, thanks for having me on the show. It's, this is definitely a first for me, so I'm super excited to be here. Um, so yeah, so my name's Steve. I'm a specialist solutions architect with the AWS serverless team, and I'm based in Perth in Western Australia. I've been with um, AWS for about six years now and been doing serverless in one way or another um, for pretty much most of that time. Uh, I've spent a lot of time helping customers be successful on serverless, with serverless technologies and taking uh, and talking about two of my favorite topics, which are event-driven architecture and Amazon EventBridge. All right. Well, th thank you both for your introductions there, right? Let's, let's jump right into this EventBridge. Um, where are we going to start today, Cheryl? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we should really start with the basics. Um, so event-driven architectures, it's a pretty hot topic these days. So Steve, um, can you tell us what uh, what is event-driven architectures? What are event-driven architectures and why are they so popular these days? Well, let's start with what event-driven architectures actually are. So essentially event-driven architects, uh, architectures are an architectural style that you know, promotes the interactivity between loosely coupled system boundaries through events. And that basically means that there are no direct connections between systems. There's no request, no response, request response, and all interactivity is essentially asynchronous. And fundamentally, um, we use publish-subscribe patterns um, to produce and consume events across publishers and subscribers. So event-driven architecture has been around for a long time. Um, and when you kind of think about it, it seems like a really natural way to think about building systems. I mean, we're living in a, an event, we're, we're actually living in an event-driven world. You know, we're constantly reacting to changes in our environment. And sometimes we choose to action things and sometimes we ignore them and Sometimes we just uh, take a note of them and, and do them later. Yeah, and I guess that's how business works too, right? Yeah, precisely. So in many ways, it can be you know quite challenging to to model this in, model this interactivity and, and get it right. I mean, we we we're pretty well versed in understanding the how to you know understanding the structure of things. 
know, we can easily look at an organizational structure or the entities that, you know, are operating in our respective domains and our businesses, and we can draw relationships between them quite easily. But it's much harder to, to kind of model behavior. And I guess companies are kind of switching on to this fact and, you know, looking at event-driven architectures um, because they can see how it's helping them, you know, decouple their applications. Um, it's allowing for logical decomposition of business functionality. It's helping with process isolation and um, allowing them to, to scale and monitor application components independently of one another. And, and you know, that, that isolation it really helps with things like, you know, dealing with failures. And so, you know, errors in one part of the system don't actually impact any, you know, the, the, the rest of your architecture. And it's making things easy and it's making it easier to sort of integrate um, cloud-based applications and services. And the thing that I've noticed with working with customers is that they start, you know, talking about, when they start talking about an event take or start taking an event-driven approach and, and developing applications that, um, they're developing applications that are incrementally evolving, they're doing so and then slowly moving to a microservices architecture without actually planning to, you know, go full um, microservices to begin with. And the architectures they're coming up with are much more closely aligned to the behaviors of the business rather than how they're structured. So uh, you're saying you need to start modeling events. So how are events different to normal data structures? Well, let's put it this way. Like in, in almost every presentation I've given on event-driven architecture or event bridge, I've given a definition that an event represents a signal that a system state has changed. Um, and while that's technically correct, it's, it, there's a lot, it's more to it than that. So from a structural perspective, events represent something that uh, that have already happened, right? An event is something that's occurred in the past, which means you can't change it. It's it's an immutable uh, it's an immutable fact that you know is uh, is is part of history, and so um, they're not really meant to be used as data transfer objects. And I think this is probably one of the more challenging aspects of event-driven architectures. The questions you know you typically get is, well, how big or how much data should my events contain? Well, so let me jump in there, right? So what, what is the guidance that we're gonna give customers then, right? How, how much data should something contain, right? And, and what is the answer we ultimately give there? <laughs> well, your typical architecture question, uh, architect's <laughs> answer is that it, it depends, okay. <laughs> right? But, but, but seriously, it does. Um, uh, and that's where you have to spend time, um, you know, talking to the business stakeholders and understanding business processes. Because events come in different shapes and sizes, right? Um, yeah. A lot of the time, um, when I hear people talking about events, there isn't much of a distinction made between one event or another. It's just assume that we know what the intended application is. And I, I actually fall into this trap myself. But understanding the different types of events really help you to kind of recognize where and when to apply them in your architecture. Um, Martin Fowler, for example, like he identified um, you know, three different types of events that are really actually really useful definitions. First is like these notification events, which are kind of basically that signal that I just talked about, right? Um, they notify you that something important has happened, but generally don't have a lot in the way of information and are, you know, 
generally void of context, which typically means that um, that context needs to be provided by event consumers um, if they need more information. So then you've got um, what he calls event carried state transfer events, which are like at the type of event that we consume when we want to capture changes in data. Now, think about events that are generated from a DynamoDB stream, for example, right? Those are considered to be event carried state transfer events. And these events hold a delta of the changes that were made to items in your table and are really useful for updating consumers' local copy of the information that they're storing in their own store in their own service data stores. And then you've got domain events, which are really a combination of, you know, uh, of the both with, you know, the express difference is that, you know, they're intended to be self-contained. And they're, um, and they're typically modeled as close to the domain model as possible. Um, not a model in that sentence, but, um, and, but they also include all of the context necessary for consumers to process those events without the need to have to query a source for additional details. So that's interesting. Uh, so which uh, event type does uh, EventBridge align with? Well, I'd say the domain event. Um, well, when you look at the structure of an event um, that EventBridge creates, um, it allows producers to add context to the events that they're publishing. There's lots of fields such as, you know, time, you know, you've got your detail type, um, you've got your source uh, fields. Um, there's other information about where the event originated from. Um, you've got event IDs and you've got spots to put your data. Um, so one of the things that, you know, makes EventBridge such a, you know, a great service, I think, is that, you know, uniformly describing at events um, uh, in this way and, and having EventBridge create this fundamentally this envelope for all of the events is really making integrating your services much, much easier. Because irrespective of the type of system that produced the event, um, you know, that could be, you know, like a custom application that you're building or an AWS service event or, or an event that's generated by a SaaS application, all the events um, that flow through EventBridge are structurally the same which means that they can be handled and processed in the same way. And that's a really powerful concept, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, thank you guys both for that. So much detail there, right? And we're just we're just getting started, right? We're only about 10 minutes into the show, right? And we, that was, I think, a good foundational primer of really event-driven architectures. But let's, let's dive into this a little more here, right? So it's my understanding that when you build an event-driven architecture, you really need to have a tool that's going to help you orchestrate things. So let's get into that topic. And that's really what today is about, right? We're going to talk about EventBridge. So let's start with a primer on what EventBridge is and, and get started with some of those foundations. Yeah, that's right. So you have definitely need um, to have an event router to move events around the different parts of your architecture and across system boundaries. So the way that EventBridge works uh, is basically it all starts with an event source. You know, these can be uh, any one of the, the hundreds of events that are flowing in through AWS services. Um, you could be creating your own custom events from your own custom applications. Um, or you've got events um, you know, coming from um, our growing number of um, AWS SaaS integration partners that, event, uh, that emit events directly from their products um, that are operating externally to AWS directly into an event bus that you own. So uh, how many types of event buses do we have, Steve? 
Yeah, so first, first of all, um, uh, you have the default event bus. So if you're familiar with the, um, the default event bus that's in CloudWatch events, this is essentially the same thing. Um, where EventBridge differs is that you can now create your own custom event buses for your own custom applications, as well as creating event buses that are dedicated to ingesting partner events. Uh, so then how does EventBridge determine how to route these events in these uh, event buses? Yeah, so once you've, um, once you've got an event bus, you can associate it with, you can associate rules with it. And those rules allow you to match against the values in the, um, the metadata or the EventBridge envelope or the payloads of the events. And you can then determine how to route those events um, to a specific destination. And you can have those, and those that routing can be associated with uh, and, and multiple targets. Um, so each rule allows you to um, you know, configure up to five different targets to send those events to. Um, and um, those targets allow you to do things like invoke a Lambda function or put a record on the Kinesis data stream or a Firehose delivery stream, or you might be starting an execution of a step functions workflow or invoking API, evoking an API gateway endpoint. Yeah, that's interesting. So can I target any AWS service from EventBridge? Well, <laughs> I don't think you can, not, not yet anyway, but at least we can, we've got at least 28 native service integrations that you can take advantage of today, which are, which is pretty cool, I reckon. So and what that basically means is a whole lot of plumbing that you don't have to take care of. These are no code uh, or low code solutions that uh, really take away the complexities of, um, you know, further integrating um, your, uh, your, your systems. So uh, really nice. Picture. Yeah, I think that's definitely important because that, that definitely gives the opportunity for developers to integrate their application sooner, allow them to move quicker to their application, actual business functionality quicker. So it's, it's a great opportunity to accelerate those workloads. Um, so that was definitely a lot of information there. I, I did hear CloudWatch events and I kind of wanted to dig a little there. So what is the difference between EventBridge and CloudWatch events? Actually, uh, Shai, EventBridge was formerly called CloudWatch Events. It's effectively the same, except now you can create your own event buses and you can integrate with third-party event sources with partner event buses. The default event bus, it's still there as the rules you created in CloudWatch Events. They just get displayed in the EventBridge console. If you look at CloudWatch Events console today, you'll see that it's slowly being phased out of the CloudWatch events console and moving to EventBridge. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that clarity, Cheryl. So that you mentioned that EventBridge can ingest events from uh, third-party SaaS applications. Can you dig into a little bit more how, that, how does that actually work? Yeah, so um, traditionally the way that customers would have done this would, would, or are, and are still doing this is through webhooks, right? So they create an API um, that they either you know, self-host or they use something like API Gateway, and then they integrate that into the applications or, or send a message directly to EventBridge. But there's a fair amount of infrastructure to manage there and you have a lot of security to manage on top of that. So SaaS providers who um, have become EventBridge partners simplify that whole integration. Right? So basically, once the partner is onboarded with EventBridge, they get a special partner events for, event source that they send events to. And as a customer um, of that partner, you would need to opt into receiving events that they publish. 
which is done typically through the interfaces that are made available in their in their own services. So you tell them what account you want the events being sent to and what regions to send events to. And then all you have to do is associate the event, um, associate um, the event bus to where the events are then going to be delivered. And AWS takes care of all of the routing um, from uh, the partner uh, from the partner side to an event bus that's in your account. And that really simplifies that whole security model um, and <clears throat> and how you actually consume the events, which is uh, really nice. Yeah, that definitely sounds exciting. That's just definitely triggering, triggering different ideas in my head as well of how to use the service. So thank you both for that detail. I think there's a lot of really good foundational information there. Um, we're not going to just have time. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time really to dig into every feature of EventBridge. Uh, we're probably going to have to do multiple shows afterwards and you know, happy to have you both on again. We'll dive into those things. Um, so help me both out here real quick. What are some of the key features that you're hearing a lot from your customers? What do you, what do you think we should dive in first? So one feature where we see an interest from our customers is the archive and replay feature in EventBridge. So this uh, basically allows you to archive your events and uh, replay them at a later time. So you might wonder when you might want to use this. And uh, we've seen customers use it for, for example, after they're testing code fixes um, to test historical events. Or you might even want to test some new features and you want to use your historical data to measure performance. And uh, another use case might be is where uh, you want to hydrate your test environments with the production data. And uh, one thing uh, to note is uh, your archive is associated with one event bus. All right. So, so do we have to uh, do we have to archive all the events? Is that a requirement? Actually, you don't, uh, Shai. Uh, you can choose. You have an. You can choose to archive all your events, uh, but you don't have to. You could archive on, like only a subset of your events. So you could choose your retention period, whether you want to store it indefinitely, or you can pick a period that is suitable for you. And uh, one thing to note is that you can only uh, replay events to the same event bus from which they were archived. All right, so Cheryl, you, you mentioned uh, replay a couple times there. Can you uh, replay only for a certain duration? Yeah, actually you can, Shai. Uh, you can specify a time frame for the replay. And while replaying, you can either replay all rules or you can indiv replay individual rules. Okay. And uh, uh, one uh, other alternative to archive we are seeing our customers use is so, for example, if you want to use a self-managed uh, capability, you could have EventBridge uh, send your events uh, to Kinesis Data Firehose, and then you can persist that in S3. From there on, you could use Athena. So this is... Uh, Another option, if you want to go the self-managed route. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, they're they're um they're definitely great capabilities, and I, I particularly like that last um, the last example that you just mentioned. Um, you know, where customers are actually using Athena to do um, some really interesting you know, data analytics um, on events, almost kind of in re in in, in, re in real time. So um, that's definitely uh, a pretty cool uh, a pretty cool capability. Um, yeah, like one of my favorite um, features, I'd have to say, is uh, probably the schema registry. Um, you know, as you, you know, as your architecture starts to grow and there's more and more events, you know, flowing through your system, 
um, you know, the complexity of your architecture starts to starts to grow, and you then, you know, you start to ask yourself questions. Well, you know, how do I start to describe and, and version my events so other people can consume it, all right? And or how do I enable my development teams to easily discover those events um, throughout the that, that that are working throughout my um, organization? Um, or you might be going, well, oh, how do I help? How do I use these events to help? sort of with developer productivity um, to easily get started on, you know, writing, you know, event handlers, um, but at the same time, um, you know, sort of maintain consistency um, across all of the all of the projects that I'm working on. So there's a few questions that sort of come up, and I think this is where the schema registry comes in, right? Because it allows developers to define the event structure or, um, as, a, as a schema using standard specifications like open api or you can also use json schema uh, specifications as well and this removes the need for developers to actually have to look through documentation um, which let's face it not many people not, not many developers i know like to do that um, and that allows them to to consume and, and validate events uh, programmatically when they have a schema that they can attach themselves to yeah, I think that that's definitely a neat feature for sure. And also the event bridge schema registry, it makes accessing schemas easy by centrally storing your schemas generated by all your event sources. So any developer in your organization can access them. So let me let me jump in there because I, I want to dig into something. I know, you know, some customers might not like that idea, right? It can customers control the schema discovery feature availability. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a whole, um, you know, there's a whole security around um, accessing uh, schemas and making them visible and, um, and accessible to to people across your organisation. Um, there's also nice, neat features for you to be able to actually discover um, schemas as well. So, for example, you know, you you can write schemas from scratch but you could also use a feature on your event bus called um, schema, schema Discovery. And when that's turned on um, um, and events are sent through an event bus, the schema is actually inferred automatically for you and, and put into a, a special kind of registry called the, um, uh, uh, the, the uh, Discovered Schemas Registry. And, um, and that obviously makes, you know, creating schemas um, a lot easier for developers and provides a really good starting point. Now, the schemas can be one of the one of the things that I really like about the schema registry is that you can use um, those schemas to download what we call code bindings, right? And those allow you to uh, represent the event um, as a uh, as a strongly typed object in your code. And you can then take advantage of IDE features such as, you know, validation and, and auto-completion and IntelliSense. And so you can download those code bindings um, for, you know, languages that, uh, that they include Java. You can um, download code bindings for Python and TypeScript. And we also recently, um, I think back in March, we released support for, um, for Golang. Which um, you can now use to to, to reverse engineer um, you know, your 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 events um, into um, into strongly typed code, and that's pretty cool. I really like that feature. And it, we've got if you install the um, the AWS toolkit for 
um, uh, for IntelliJ suite of products or Visual Studio Code. Um, you can use that, and uh, in addition to the serverless application model, you can use those features to, to reverse engineer code. So now all we need is uh, support for .NET, uh, Ruby, and PHP, and then we'll have a full suite um, of uh, code bindings. Uh, so that's exciting, Steve, actually. So uh, how would we handle when our schema changes or now we have a new version? Well, it's actually a pretty good question. So um, as I mentioned earlier, um, events are immutable, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they can't evolve over time. Because as business requirements change, um, so will the definition of your events. So if you, say, add a new field to a um, your event, that technically means that you've changed the structure of the event. So you need to create a new version of your schema. Um, and schemas like events are, um, are also immutable. So you can't modify an existing schema. You can only create a new version of the schema. So the, the interesting thing, though, is really how do you roll those changes out? So you can't really have two versions of the same event occupying the same space for, for too long, right? So you need to make sure that consumers, um, you know, are consuming um, those new events. So they need to create either new event handlers or update existing subscriptions uh, to consume the new version of your event. This also means that then for a period of time, at least, that event producers may need to publish two versions of the same event to make sure that they can support um, the new consumers with the new version of, of their event, while at the same time maintaining backwards compatibility um, with existing subscribers. So ultimately, um, publishing multiple versions of an event, though, isn't really a sustainable activity um, for event producers. So. Um, and that can add additional complexity to your solutions. So you really want to make you want to you you want to make sure that um, you've got backwards compatibility um, uh, until all of the consumers have migrated to the latest versions of the events. So um, it's in your best interest to make sure that everyone gets on board pretty quickly. Thanks, Steve. That's some, some great insights. Definitely some uh, good food for thought to have there. So I read recently that EventBridge launched a feature called uh, Global Endpoints. Um, and I got particularly excited because it facilitates uh, failovers. Uh, past listeners remember my, my passion really is in storage and disaster recovery, BCP and continuity. Uh, can you help me dig into that, Steve? Absolutely. So um, yeah, Global Endpoints is a new feature that we launched a few weeks ago, actually, um, that makes it really easy for you to automatically route events across regions. So let's just say you've got a need to maintain a level of continuity across your applications and you'd like to make sure that you can continue processing events in another regions, um, you know, should events, uh, should EventBridge be experiencing kind of service disruptions. So Global Endpoints allows you to do that by allowing you to fail over event ingestions automatically to a secondary region during those disruptions. So when you create a global endpoint, um, we're creating a, a managed route 53 endpoint for you that you can then use to route messages to um, rather than um, sending events directly to the event bus. So you need to update your API implementations um, to include the endpoint, um, the endpoint ID. But basically, 
um, you can configure the event bus. So basically what you need to do is you need to configure an event bus in your primary region and then an event bus in your secondary region. Now, under normal con operating conditions, all of the events will get routed um, to your primary region. But in the event that there is some service disruption, um, global event points basically just switches the event routing configuration uh, over for the endpoint. And um, all of the events then get delivered to the event bus in the secondary region. Okay, so, so what actually happens though, right? How, how does the automatic failover happen to the other region? Yeah, well, we added a new metric called uh, ingestion to invocation start latency, which is a bit of a tongue twister. Um, but, but this exposes the, the time to process events from the point at which they are ingested by EventBridge to the point the first invocation of a target in your rules is made. So this is a service level metric that's measured across all of the rules and provide uh, that in that you have in your um, in your account and provides an indication of the health of the event bridge service. And when you create your endpoint, you also create around around fifty three health check with a CloudWatch alarm that monitors this metric. And if it falls into an alarmed state. Events are then uh, it triggers a, a failover and events are rerouted to the to the secondary region. Yeah, I think this is a much desired feature. I can uh, definitely see this coming handy coming in handy for DR scenarios. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other cool things about global endpoints is that having the option um, to easily is to have the have the option to easily replicate uh, um, events to the secondary region. So when you um, enable replication on endpoints, EventBridge actually creates um, a managed rule that then replicates uh, events from the primary region to the secondary region. So you don't actually have to do all that much to make that happen. Um, and all you uh, and that allows you to then either you know, process those replications in the secondary region um, and, you know, almost um, you know, concurrently to the events that you're processing in the primary region, um, or you can choose to archive those in that feature that you just mentioned before, the archive and replay. So you can store the events that have been um, that have been replicated to the secondary region for um, disaster recovery purposes, right? So you've got a, a larger um, recovery point um, from, um, you know, in the case that uh, anything goes wrong. But if you um if you check out um, my blog post on the AWS Compute blog, um, you can get a whole lot more detail around that feature. It's, it's a pretty pretty nice feature, so um, I definitely encourage you to check it out. So maybe we can put that onto the uh, show's footnote, shy. Yeah, no, definitely. We we definitely can do that, right? And we'll, we'll give you a little break there so we can uh, you can get some water and take a bit of a breather. So Cheryl, what what are some other features you think that our customers should uh, be aware of? Yeah, another interesting feature, Shai, is uh, EventBridge uh, API destinations in EventBridge. So just as you can invoke a Lambda function as a target, you can do the same with HTTP endpoints. And uh, API destinations are really third-party targets outside of AWS that you can invoke uh, with an HTTP request. So this integration replaces your know, custom code. It helps manage secrets and API keys and automatically handles the queuing and throttling of downstream requests. So, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. So where, where would you provide the authorization um, that you normally need in HTTP endpoints? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and uh, so basically in an API destination, it has a connection that it uses to manage the authentication credentials. And so this defines uh, the authorization type uh, used, uh, which can be either an API key, it can be an OAuth client credentials or just a basic username and password. And one more thing I wanted to point out with API destinations is you can choose to transform your message. So, for example, if you want to take your event and transform it into something else before sending to your downs to your HTTP endpoint, you can do that. And I think that's a pretty neat feature. Yeah, for, for sure. So lot, lots of awesome stuff there. And I'm, I'm learning a ton myself, too, as we're just getting started here. I, I know that, again, I know that there's more features, right, that we could definitely dive into, but I think we should... Uh, move on to some more architecture topics because uh, I know some of our listeners are looking to for this information. Um, you know, but I do or encourage our listeners if you're looking to dive more into different features, you know, please drop us a line, uh, leave comments on the show page. Uh, we'll definitely have a second session, even a third session, to dive into some more features there. Um, so, listeners, I, I want to thank you for sticking around. Right, there's been a lot of information so far, and I have a sense that we're going to go even deeper down the rabbit hole. Uh, what do you think, Cheryl? Yeah, we are actually. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about event bridge architectures. Um, Steve, uh, what recommendations can you give us here? Well, let's see. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a good question. So look, the, the first thing I'd say, like if you're starting out, you know, building your, uh, um, starting to build out your event-driven architecture is really focus on you know, the logical architecture first. So uh, many customers will actually sort of dive into, you know, the, the, the services and the technical aspects of, um, you know, building a, building a solution. And I think taking a step back and making sure that you've got a clear understanding of, you know, what your system boundaries look like um, and making sure that they're well-defined is a really important first step. And this includes having well-defined events. So as I mentioned before, there's all different types of events that you can, you can have um, and making sure that you choose the most appropriate event for the architecture at hand um, is, is really important. And that's only really, you can only really derive at, at that by spending time modeling your business processes and, and ensuring that, um, you know, that, that the integrations that you build, that you're building, um, you know, are meaningful to the business. And once that's done, you can really then then you can really kind of and you've mapped that out and you can see where the logical connections are, um, you know, in your architectures. You can focus on how you can map that logical architecture to a physical one, and that in turn leads people to start to ponder about how, you know how to configure their um, their physical architectures and what kind of event bus topologies they might want to use um, to support that. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, really, this goes across many different broad topics, right? Don't start with the technology first. Start with the problem you have with your business challenge at first and then work backwards from that and then find the ultimate yeah. architecture that meets that business requirements, not the other round. So, yeah, yeah exactly. definitely good information there, right? I, I recall there was a, a common topic that we had heard um, around uh, at reInvent particularly, right? Customers were asking uh, whether they should have multiple event buses or maybe a single bus. Uh, can we help our listeners break this out a little bit more? Yeah, so um, at reInvent 2020, it delivered a session um, on EventBridge that goes um, into that in some detail. Uh, many customers, when they first get to to that point where they, um, you know, where they've mapped out their logical architecture, they want to know like, where do I get started? How do I get started with EventBridge? Do I use a single event bus with a single account? 
do I use a single um, uh, event bus with multiple accounts? What about if I use multiple event buses with within a single account, or do I use multiple buses across multiple accounts? So a few options there, um, and sometimes um, you know the choices there aren't, aren't too clear, and you know aren't clearly cut. So a single bus and a single account, that makes sense to me. But why would you use a single bus with multiple accounts? Well, many customers start with a single bus with a, and multi-account uh, topology because it's they like having an account per service strategy, which basically just really means that uh, it's another way of saying that each service or application lives in its own account because... Um, those accounts, um, you know, help provide those services with a blast radius, and it also provides additional security boundaries that allow you to and allows you to easily track um, those service costs. When you're in a shared environment where you've got multiple services in um, uh, in a single account, then um, you know, tracking that, maintaining those boundaries and those blast radiuses becomes a little bit more challenging. So then, can you talk about some factors that might influence uh, your decision? Yeah, the way that you structure your your development teams and how you allocate responsibility and, and governance around managing cloud resources, I think, really plays a, a, a big part in this. And so, many organisations um, today, like they have DevOps or integration teams that are responsible for managing resources that support these integrations and. Um, in other organisations, that responsibility falls to the teams that are actually developing the applications. So there's a big mix there. And I think that can influence how what type of topology you might want to go with. So in a single bus topology, um, all of the routing logic and all of the rules for all of the services in the organisation are really centralised in that single event bus. And this makes it easy for DevOps or integration teams to, to manage the event bus resources. But it also means that the event bus is a shared resource. So at um, the point I was making in my presentation, that in, in order to accelerate development um, for those service teams, um, if they're not responsible for, um, for or, or have access to um, the event bus resource themselves, is that they really need to, they should be working with um, the integration teams or the integration team should be working with them, I should say, to, to help them implement the rules and the integrations that those teams need. <coughs> yeah, so for organizations that have a structured DevOps team, this seems like a natural fit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And ideally, if you're if you are um, on that integration team, you you really want to be um, you know, getting out of the way of those development activities and and letting application teams manage their own resources on the event bus. And and this is where resource policies come in. All right. So I, I hear that there's some some teasing there, right? I, I'm going to take that. Uh, how do the resource policies actually help? Actually, resource policies will allow you to manage uh, permissions for your API calls uh, that interact uh, with an event bus. And it allows users that you know don't own the event bus to do things like put events onto the event bus or even create rules and targets. So this basically means that the DevOps and the integration teams uh, could be managing these resource policies and application teams can manage their integrations themselves. And so this allows like a separation of responsibilities. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really powerful feature. I'm glad I took the hint and we, we dove in there. Um, and really, as a, as a bonus, one of the things that it promotes is really a loose coupling across many teams, right? So no more silos, which which I love that idea. Um, well, so how is the how is the multibus approach different here then? Well, the multibus or the multibus topology, um, where you you know where you're distributing events across multiple accounts, is is a little bit different in that the application teams manage the event bus. Um, as part of the applications that they're building, um, building, and this is actually quite—I think this is, you know—to me, it seems like a quite natural way for you to want to architect the solutions. If you think about it, it basically means that the application owners um, own, or the, the the application owns the means by which it's publishing events, and the the contracts or the subscriptions that get established on those event buses are directly with um, consumers uh, that are wanting to integrate with that service. Um, and those and those those relationships then are, are very um, very explicit. But what this does actually mean that is that um, you know from a resource management perspective that there are many more buses um, and rules to manage that are more distributed and um, you know, that sometimes um, can make uh, you know, monitoring um, a little bit more, like I said, a little bit more spread out and you can, um, but that's, but there, that's a bit of a trade-off that you get to make around, uh, you know, kind of resource ownership. And it fundamentally comes down to the question around, you know, who is then owns what and who's going to be responsible for, for what. So is there a right way and a wrong way to do that, Steve? No, no, absolutely not. The point I was making here is that it's it's there really isn't a right way or wrong way to do things. Um, one of the things I love about EventBridge is that you know event buses are essentially a really lightweight serverless service that you know can provide you a huge amount of functionality, um, and you know you can set up a, an event bus with a you know with a single line of code, and that's um, you know unlike sort of traditional integration platforms, that's that's a really you know fresh alternative to to building integrations. What we see is that you know, customers are really, you know, they're they're approaching it in a you know evolutionary kind of manner. We can we're seeing customers use single bus topologies and then potentially um, you know mixing and matching that with other topologies uh, as their architectural needs change. Um, so it doesn't have to be a one-way decision, right? You can you can pick what's right and what's best for you for your organisation. So then if our listeners want to know more or to see an example of how these patterns are implemented, uh, is there somewhere they can go? Yeah, there is. Uh, so uh, obviously the recording of the, the session that we're, we're talking about is available on YouTube. Um, but I've also published examples, code samples um, of all of the patterns, uh, including um, including ones uh, for cross-region, uh, cross-account event delivery. Um, uh, on our AWS samples uh, GitHub repository. So um, I'll, that's definitely a good resource if you want to see how um, you know the um, how the how the patterns that I talk about um, are actually physically actually implemented in code and how you can um, use um, your resource policies to manage access to the respective event buses. Um, that's a really good resource to go to. Yeah, and, and listeners, you know where to find that. We'll, we'll put all those resources in the show notes. Definitely get a lot of stuff that we can we can keep diving into, and we'll put those all in the show notes there. So please do, do go take a look. 
look, there's lots of great stuff there. I, I got a couple extra shovels. I think let's keep digging, right? There's more stuff here. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, right? How would you handle errors and the related events, right? I know this is an area of a, a particular struggle for one of my customers. Um, Cheryl, do you want to take this on? Yeah, for sure, Shai. And this is absolutely something our customers, they want to understand. So your my event didn't get delivered. What do you do now? And uh, EventBridge has a feature called dead letter queues. Also, you'll hear it being called DL queues. And these make your event-driven applications more resilient and durable. So these are really basically just standard SQS queues. And uh, so if your events can't be de delivered, for example, if your target is unavailable, uh, these events can be stored in a dead letter queue. Okay, so that's interesting. So, okay, so there's a DLQ, right? Or, or, or what's called a dead letter queue, right? So DLQ, um, that's associated with a rule, right? Yeah, actually, Shai, you associate a DLQ with your target, okay. not necessarily with a rule. So you can uh, have a DLQ associated with each of your targets. So if you have multiple targets, like a Lambda function or an API gateway endpoint, uh, and if for some reason the event couldn't be delivered uh, to the API gateway endpoint, uh, that particular event will be sent to the DLQ. Okay, now how about, how about a, a retry? Is there some sort of a retry event before the uh, event sent to that DLQ? Actually, there is. Um, you can have a custom retry policy where you can specify the max duration for the retries and the number of retries uh, to retry after which the event uh, will be sent to the DLQ. Okay, so we, we, we talked about the, the DLQ and what how to handle those errors, right? But let's let's back up a bit, right? We, we didn't talk about uh, what are some of the possible causes of some of those errors that might lead to an event not being delivered. Can we dig into that a bit more? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, uh, one situation would be is you don't have your permissions are not set correctly. For example, you have an incorrect IAM role assumption. Uh, another situation might be is the service itself, the downstream service itself is unavailable. Or uh, you've deleted some resources. For example, your Lambda function is deleted. Or there might also be throttling issues that might cause this. Um, Another situation would be where you have like a cross account loop or uh, you might be sending in incorrect parameters. So these are just some of the examples that I can think of. Yeah, and there's so many. Yeah. So, so what happens when events reach the DLQ then? Okay. All right. So uh, when your uh, events reach the DLQ, you can actually inspect them to determine uh, what the root cause of the error was by inspecting the metadata that EventBridge adds to the message. And I think this is really a useful feature when you're troubleshooting and fixing problems. Um, so Steve, in, in your reInvent presentation, you mentioned some of those best practices. Can you go into a little bit here? Yeah, well, actually, uh, Cheryl just mentioned one of them. So I, I did talk <laughs> about um, using um, dead letter queues. So that's, um, as Cheryl said, that's a, that's a good way to start integrating um, more um, you know, reliability into, into your event-driven architectures. Um, the other two that, that I mentioned in the, in the presentation were, well, the first one was, like, you know, if you're building custom applications and um, don't use the default event bus, um, you know, for for, for that, right? Um, it, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really, because and it doesn't really need to be, you know, elaborated on any more than that. I mean, you've already got something, you've got over 200 AWS services already emitting events into that default event bus, um, you know, adding custom events you know, to, to, to the default event bus doesn't actually make that much sense. Just, just use custom event buses. 
And the other one, the other um, you know, kind of recommended practice that I talk about was, um, you know, uh, around viewing rules um, as a as a as a per event subscription. Okay, so let, let's let's get into that bit. So, what do you mean by subscriptions? And and let's you know give us all the detail there. And don't worry, I'll I'll stop you if you go too far because we're we're getting near the end of the show here. So, um, okay, dig, let's dig into that bit here. Yeah, no worries. So, EventBridge allows you to add up to five targets to to a rule, right? Um, and lots of customers have asked questions about um, you know about this constraint, and typically they're asking asking us to you know, to get more, right? Um, and fundamentally, what they're really trying to do is trying to achieve large fan out, which is understandable, right? This is what we what we're trying to do with uh, with EventBridge and event driven architectures anyway. But if you create a, a rule on EventBridge with with more than two targets, and those rules belong to different domains or, or different service boundaries, then you could be potentially introducing unintended coupling into your integration because you're now coupling uh, you're, you're being you're coupling to the to the rule pattern and not just the event. So um, let's just as an example, let's just say you've got three three consumers and they're all interested in us in a, in a particular event but they're processing those events in different ways right according to you know their own domain needs um, now if they're all targets on a single rule if one of these consumer requirements change and the rule needs to be updated well then it impacts all of the others too and that may not be something that you'd really want to do so the the recommendation is really about having a single target per rule and so that means they basically have multiple rules per event but those those target configurations are you know managed independently of any other consumer so those um those three uh, consumers i talked to uh, mentioned before rather than having um rather than being um, three targets on one rule, you would have each of those consumers have their own rules for the same event. Um, the only exception to this to this rule, I would say, um, is that you know perhaps if you've got uh, multiple consumers from the same domain that want to potentially process events in different ways. So then, if we are to have one target per rule, shouldn't should we be concerned about hitting limits? Well, um, yeah, I mean, with this approach, you have to be mindful about the number of rules that you've got on any given event bus. Um, if you have a single bus topology uh, where all of your application integrations are created on a single event bus, um, then you definitely need to monitor the, you know, those limits more closely. Um, one way that you can get around that, if you used to, is to you know just create multiple logical buses of um, of uh, that are centrally managed, uh, where you're distributing. Um, you, you go into you've got the ability to categorize um, you know your event buses according to um, you know particular groupings of domains, and that way you're spreading your limit across multiple event buses um, that are being centrally managed. Um, but if you're using a multi-bus topology, then this is le- less this is operationally less onerous because all of the rules are distributed across multiple event buses anyway. So, um, uh, so again, like there's pros and cons to each approach, 
um, but um, but uh, this definitely keeps the the subscription um, you know uh, connections and the, the contracts that you're establishing between producers and consumers much more cleaner. All right, thank you for that, Steve. I think we'll we'll cut it off there. There's definitely a lot of information for today, right? We we got into a lot of detail there, uh, but I think it's important, really, before we close out and we wrap this up. Uh, I'm curious, Cheryl, where do you think our customers should start? And is there any quick starts or any things that they should like that that should take on? Yeah, definitely, Shai. Uh, so if you're new to EventBridge, uh, watch the YouTube links that we are going to have in the show notes to get some 100 to 200 level experience. And uh, we've also added some labs there and uh, we suggest uh, there will be some a blog post that will be in the show notes. Uh, take a look at that and that should be a good way for you to get started. Yeah, and I'd say, um, you know, if you're a bit, bit more advanced and you uh, a bit more of an advanced user, is that uh, you take a look at the, the reInvent session that I uh, that we've been talking about today and, and have a look at those AWS um, uh, samples on GitHub. Um, also, um, sure, if I'm permitted to a bit of a shameless yeah, sure. plug. Uh, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Um, you could, I, I'd say, like, check out um, the, the my latest um, presentation that um, I'm going to be delivering um, at the ANZ Summit called um, Designing Event-Driven Integrations with EventBridge. Um, which is happening on the 18th and the 19th of May. Um, and that really examines some key design decisions and things that you might want to be thinking about when you're using EventBridge as a central part of your serverless integration strategy. So, um, yeah, that's that's happening in a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, please go and check that out. And I'll kind of build on some of the concepts um, that we um, dive a little bit deeper into um, you know, the, the whole idea of ownership and a few other things that, uh, you know, um, make part, uh, make, make, uh, that, that are pertinent to, um, you know, your event-driven integrations. Thanks, Steve. I think that's definitely an important session to, to watch already if you want to dig into that more detail. And for our listeners, right, always remember if you can't catch the sessions live or you can't attend there, uh, they do get recorded and get posted up later, usually on our YouTube channel. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, all right. So again, great things. Um, and I think honestly, I'll be taking on some of those things myself too. I, I, I want to dig into this more and I want to learn. And I'm really curious how it relates to the world I've been in, which is, you know, storage and blockchain and DR and all that stuff. So I really want to dig into this stuff a little more. Uh, but let's let's close it out, right? Um, and let's finally close it out the show with, you know, we, we started talking about some foundations, right? Where we spoke about uh, kind of an overview of EventBridge. We talked about event-driven architectures. We talked about how that differs from CloudWatch events as well. And then we spoke about some of the features such as archive and replay and schema registry and global endpoints and API destinations. And finally, we, um, we, we talked about um, some of the architectural um, architecture and we touched upon the need to spend time modeling your logical architecture and getting a good foundation for your, uh, your event-driven applications and explored um, event bus topologies and some of the best practices. All right. Well, thank you both for joining the show. Listeners, uh, if you want to go deeper into EventBridge and a follow-up show, please drop us a line. Please share any comments or suggestions for future episodes. Cheryl, Steve, uh, thank you both. It's been a really awesome show. Uh, you both put a huge amount of work into this uh, episode over the last couple of months, and you've brought us a ton uh, a ton of depth, right? And so much information here. Uh, I really look forward to having you both on again and, and doing a round two, a round three of a deep dive. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Shai. It was uh, really a pleasure putting the show together. And yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you too. And um, it was an absolute pleasure to be on the show. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. 
please subscribe to the ADBS Tech Chat by visiting adbstechchat.com.